I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Kerry Packer was holidaying in Miami when he was given the word on pressing developments in Sydney. It was February 1995 and Ken Cowley had received approval from the Australian Rugby League to present his Super League plan to the 20 ARL clubs. Packer cut short his holiday and headed back to Australia to put an end to the whole business. In a corporate box at the Coca-Cola World Sevens, Packer consulted with Ken Arthurson and a handful of other ARL power brokers to discuss the next day's meeting. At Phillip Street, late on the afternoon of Monday, February 6, it appeared to be game over. The pay TV rights were his, the clubs were bound to a five-year loyalty agreement, and the papers were reporting that Super League was dead on arrival. This is the halftime score, Chapter 6 in the Rugby League Digest's in-depth investigation of the Super League War. Welcome back to the Rugby League Digest. I'm Michael Adams, here with Andrew Paskin. How are you, Andy? I'm well, mate. How are you? Uh, I'm good, mate. A lot to get into on this episode. Before we do, I just want to start with a, a small erratum from our last chapter. Keen-eyed listeners would have he- heard a couple of competing timelines uh, regarding when Ken Arthurson received the word that Super League was on and had to come back to Australia. I had my notes uh, a, a bit messed up last time. So basically, what happened was, during the first test, Arthurson heard that Super League was on and he should get back to Australia. It was between the second and third test that he actually did go back and meet with Ken Cowley. I'm happy you got to see some football. <laughs> uh, not much football in this episode, but we are going to start with a bit of football. So one of the key meetings before the big meeting in February took place in a corporate box at the World Sevens. And so when I was putting this together, I wanted to look briefly at the Sevens as a concept to get a bit of an idea of where it fit in in the rugby league landscape at the time. But the more I looked into it, the more I saw harbingers of what was to come and the mistakes that were being made by the ARL. And the more I realized that the sevens is actually a very important aspect of rugby league at the time. I thought it would be a worthwhile exercise to just dig into that history just briefly before we get to the developments of February 6th. I used to love the sevens as a kid. I used to try and get behind it every year it was on and every year it disappointed me. <laughs> <laughs> and I was behind the nines recently. Well, it disappointed well me. yeah, I, I wanted to bring up the sevens in reference to the nines because as a kid, I thought sevens was the coolest thing ever. You know, you had had the American team and like yeah. in, in the playground, all the talk was, they're going to throw a gridiron style. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it must have went the exact same conversation from schoolyard to schoolyard. What, what a hack combo. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but like it was legitimately exciting. Like I thought it was so cool. And it's the same with nines now. I, you know, I think it's Mickey Mouse football. I don't think it's particularly entertaining to watch. But if it is getting kids excited, if it is providing a pathway for you know minor rugby league nations uh pathway to international football uh, i should say both of those are ifs i'm not saying either of that is you know not an argument but then 
it's it's not for me. It doesn't really matter what I think of it. There was undeniable excitement. I mean, I was a big Ashley Gordon fan as a Newcastle boy, and when the Knights won it, and there was the drop kick from the sideline, that was like a huge moment for Newcastle for for mm. me uh, as a kid. So it started in 1988, uh, and at that stage, it was it was not the World Sevens. It was just uh, New South Wales club based thing, and. It was met with so little enthusiasm from the clubs that East refused to play. Cronulla sent in a reserve grade team because they had an important trial match scheduled against a North Coast team in Ballina. I didn't remember any of this because it was 1988. I was a bit young. But looking back, I mean, all this talk about, you know, it's the people's game and the game's got to help itself. Yet again, shooting itself in the foot. Mm. From the the outset of the World Sevens, they were like, we're not playing. We've got a trial match. <laughs> How self-serving have you got to be? That first tournament was actually bankrolled by Rene Rivkin. Do you think he put it in the Rivkin report? <laughs> this is a great investment called Rugby League. It's lost money for 105 years. But the point is there was actually money and power behind it and the clubs couldn't even you know, <laughs> get, get on board. Uh, so it did develop for the next few years until 1992, which was the first World Sevens event. So you had uh, a team from the US, Russia, Fiji and uh, Wigan, which was the big draw card. That was so cool. So the Russian team were, were coached by Roy Masters the US by Russell Fairfax. And, and you know, there was the, the typical stories about, you know, them arriving off the plane and not knowing how to how to play the ball and all the rest of it. So no one was under the illusion that, even as a kid, I knew that American people didn't play rugby league, you know? Yeah. But it didn't matter. It and, didn't matter. And, that, and that's not even just from a kid's perspective. There was genuine excitement in the media and from the rugby league public, regardless of the bona fides of these teams. Like one, one of the highlights of that 1992 tournament was the Russian team down 30 nil against East with seconds to play, scoring a try and absolute pandemonium breaking out in, in the crowd. It was very Eddie the Eagle esque. Yeah, yeah. I've always maintained that Russia would be a great breeding ground for rugby league players. <laughs> this is rock hard blokes. Yeah. <laughs> um, the US team uh, achieved cult status, I think, partly because of those, you know, gridiron style passes. <laughs> uh, they had a big, bald 40 year old Bob Brell who became a, a bit of a cult hero. Uh, and despite being 40 years old, when they came back the second year, they made sure to bring him with them because of the popularity he'd gained that first year. Let me ask you this. Is there any sport where it's easy to become a cult hero? <laughs> you just got to be fat, bald, loud, anything. Yeah. <laughs> Big hair, whatever you want. Uh, but as I said, Wigan were that draw card in that first year. So they decided to seed the tournament. A lot of that was because of Wigan. So Wigan were given the top seed going into that 1992 tournament, which in part reflects their status in the world. They were, you know, what, three or four Challenge Cups through their run and, and clearly they just won the, the World Club Challenge and they were on top of the game. It's amazing how, how that was. I mean, it's unthinkable now mm. that the chasm has just widened so far. So they their top seeding was in deference to that, but it was also partially to avoid them flying 15,000 kilometers to be knocked out after 30 minutes of football. Yeah. Uh, so, But there was little chance of that happening with the, their electric winger, Martin Afire, who, you know, was built for sevens football like no footballer before or since. It's amazing that even more than Ellery Hanley, like an Englishman can create that much excitement. I, mm. I still get chills thinking about chariots. Yeah. And that nickname is still the greatest ever. Yeah. <laughs> so, so Wigan did uh, end up going to win that tournament. Uh, this 
I'll, I'll just briefly read a newspaper article that gives you some idea of the excitement that he created. In the 20-minute final against Brisbane, a fire confirmed what had become increasingly apparent as the three-day World Sevens drew to a close. The 26-year-old Englishman, who moves with the beauty and fluidity of a Shakespearean sonnet, is without peer as an exponent of Sevens football. He scored all of Wigan's four tries in their 18-6, $100,000 triumph. He scored 11 tries over three days and was the only choice for the Man of the Series award. Legend. But... You were brushing up against the fact that it was Mickey Mouse football and was never going to escape that. So when the following year Wigan were invited back, they didn't want to send their good players out, leading to Ken Arthurson withdrawing their invitation. <laughs> Later Great Britain teams, it was the same story where you weren't getting you know a full-strength team being sent across. So that was always going to be the challenge with maintaining that sevens there's got to be a a licensing rule somehow enforced i don't know how they do it where you just can't do that like send half baked teams to major events yeah (laughs) it's it's outrageous but then it comes back to how can you make the sevens a major event when it's at that point was in the middle of the english season yeah i know but it's just like if no one takes it seriously there's no chance of it being a major event yeah if state of origin in 1980 did that um i don't know where we'd be Mm. Uh, so one one of the good things about seven about the sevens was its ability to put rugby union noses out of joint. <laughs> yes. So uh, this was in part because it was a rugby union idea that had been going since the seventies. In that first World Sevens, there was talk of a a Wallabies team coming into the tournament, but this was shut down instantly by Ken Arthurson. Thank uh, God. Uh, yeah, Ken Arthurson very swiftly hosed down the talk of a rugby union coming in. So Bob Dwyer, then Wallabies coach, had said something about in the press about the possibility of it, but there being too many obstacles. Ken Arthurson just came in and said there were no obstacles. They weren't invited to play and dressed down his own sevens promoter, Jeff Prenter, a bit, who Prenter had suggested a you know 12 event battle of the codes tournament taking place this battle of the codes is never going to happen no. uh, and yeah that's basically what ken arthurson he said let me say there is no way this will happen <laughs> um but it led to a, a letter from wallaby simon poitavan in the herald that it at in equal parts sickened me and just filled me with glee how upset he was getting about this whole concept <laughs> uh so th- this this opening line gives you a bit of the a- an idea of the tone for all those people out there looking for some truth and reality in this world i thought it would be a good idea to have a closer look at this weekend's rugby league world sevens i mean to say we would not want to see sydney sports lovers paying good money for a product that didn't quite meet the expectations created by the rugby league's marketing and media machine to use a term as grandiose as the world sevens certainly justifies close scrutiny of the international teams competing this weekend. The rugby league is certainly more advanced than its rugby union cousins in defining the world. Uh, Again, literally no one watching or talking about the the Sevens took the world part seriously. We all knew it was kind of a joke. But again, with the rugby union people... They've got to fall back on that we play all around the world. It's, it's never. It's a good game. It's yeah. great to watch. Uh, people like it. It's like we play around the world. And, and then he came out and said, the Hong Kong Sevens is regarded as one of the great sporting events of the world. <laughs> so, so rugby league is grandiose? <laughs> yeah. You're calling the, the Hong Kong Sevens one of the great sporting events in Man, the world? It's up there with the limited overs of uh, cricket in Sharjah, you know? Uh, <laughs> what a joke. 
And then he goes on to question the bona fides of the American rugby league team saying, did you know they don't even play rugby league in America? It's like, <laughs> yes, we did know that. Yeah, sorry, I didn't realize Union was the, was the number two sport there either. But uh, yeah, that just annoys me. First of all, his name's Simon. <laughs> no one named Simon can comment on rugby league. And this was the most galling thing of all to me. So he was questioning the, the Fijian team and why they were there. And, and it was the same thing. They were rugby union players who were brought over for the event. Uh, he writes this, The Fijian team does include four Trumps from the current Fijian rugby union sevens team who have stated publicly that they're here for the money, not love. I'm sure they would be ideal targets for Kevin Ryan's players union with their dollars and cents attitude. Like, <laughs> cover your children's ears. The fucking nerve of this guy. Access to the, you know, most well-connected old boys network in the country <laughs> is now like a, a, you know, highly successful stockbroker because of that. Yeah. Criticizing some Fijian players for a dollars and cents attitude. Outrageous. It's worth noting full circle that the uh, current Wallabies at the time of recording have um, have Marika Corabetti, a former, <laughs> uh, former Fijian rugby league sevens player. So... <laughs> There you go. Uh, but on the flip side to that, there was some some classic Arco pettiness uh, <laughs> in 1994 when the Warringah Rugby Union team decided to stage a rival Sevens event on the same day, <laughs> which like that shouldn't even be on your radar. Yeah, you could get you down a rat park. <laughs> he said this, uh, and I should add that the the Warringah event was for charity. So uh, Ken Arthurson had this to say: "This is an incredible decision." It's a very inopportune time for them to play. I don't want to criticize Warringah's charity, which is bushfire relief, because we've just sent off a check for $10,000. But the date they've chosen is definitely not in the spirit of cooperation that exists among major football codes in Australia. Oh, that legendary cooperation. <laughs> what I love about Arco is his absolute disdain for union. Yeah. Never left him. <laughs> love the guy. Uh, so that leads me to the, the Harbingers, uh, or, or signs of trouble ahead that the Sevens showed. One of those was in industrial relations, which, as we've seen, became a real issue with clubs and players feeling they weren't getting adequately looked after by the league, sowing some discontent that would, you know, quite directly lead to Super League. So the Players Union came in in 1992 demanding that players get paid for the event, which, as it, <laughs> as it did operate then, it was the winners and, you know, minor place getters got a share of the prize money, but that was the only payment. Yeah, we're talking about direct harbingers to Super League here. I mean, they're not paying the people. Like, what do they expect? Yeah, and so what the Players Union were asking for was $300 per player per game plus injury insurance, <laughs> which, and Kevin Ryan said that, you know, we, we can negotiate on the payment, whatever they think is fair, but the injury insurance, that's something the players definitely want. Shouldn't even be an issue. It, it, shouldn't, it shouldn't be. And the league's response was to come out and threaten to cancel the whole event Jeff Prenner came out and tried to play the players' union off against the public by saying that this step that the players' union were taking would cause them to have to raise ticket prices next year. <laughs> and it's just so petty and so typical. I mean, if you haven't even got any insurance for the players, I mean, that's literally a Mickey Mouse administration. And that was all in the Super League negotiations. That was always in the pitch that they'd sell to the players. And almost to a man, any player who came out in favour of Super League, that's one of the first things they talked about, the, the fact that Super League was actually concerned about their welfare from that side of things. Yeah. And the other thing which we've talked about quite a bit was the Sydney-centric nature of the Australian Rugby League and the issues that caused. And so it shouldn't be a surprise to know that when it was suggested that 
the Sevens might go to Brisbane, for example, uh, after having only modest drawing capacity in Sydney towards the end of the run. That was quickly shut down uh, with, with a very good reason. So in 1993, Sydney was announced as hosts of the 2000 Olympics. So Ken Arthurson said, we don't think it would have been a very good idea to take the Sevens away from Sydney when we've just been granted the Olympics. <laughs> it would have been a great shame. <laughs> <laughs> so an event seven years away <laughs> means that the World Sevens has to be held in Sydney. This series has really opened my eyes up to how badly we treated Queensland. Yeah. That's just ridiculous. So again and again. Uh, so it would have made money in Brisbane. Yeah. But for all that, the Sevens does have some kind of legacy in terms of the future direction of the game. So for a start, the TV ratings were through the roof to the point where uh, John McDonald writing the Sydney Morning Herald wrote that television would have rugby league 12 months a year if it could. Uh, so it's no surprise then that rugby league became such a jewel for the coming pay TV um, services. It's such an amazement to me still that it took the 90s for him to work out that rugby league was good for TV. Yeah. And the other thing is, despite the you know, maybe questionable credentials of the international aspect of the teams playing in the sevens. It gave World Cup organisers the idea that they could make their World Cup a bigger thing. Morris Lindsay, in fact, the English league boss, went as far to say that the 1995 World Cup with the 10-team format wouldn't have happened but for the exposure gained from the World Sevens. I think this is a good example of rugby league DNA in that they're always willing to try something new, mm. whether it fails or not. It's like, this could be exciting. This could kick off. It rarely works, but they're always <laughs> trying something to you know keep the ball rolling forward. Well, speaking of which, that's basically where we left the story last time, that Ken Arthurson had met with Ken Cowley, had preliminary discussions uh, with the view that in February, Cowley would present to the clubs the idea of Super League. And in preparation for that, Ken Arthurson, John Quayle and Peter Moore met with Ken Cowley on the 30th of January to hear about the proposal, uh, which obviously Peter Moore didn't really need to be at that meeting. I think he knew a bit about it already. <laughs> uh, before they spoke to the clubs to get an idea of what was going to be in the proposal. So this meeting came after a couple of months of, of fairly amicable conversations between Ken Arthurson and Ken Cowley, but almost from the start, John Quayle was dead set against the idea. And in one meeting, he spent the entire meeting just glowering at Ken Cowley, <laughs> not saying anything. And it, this was noted by Ken Cowley, who said to, to Arco, look at John Quayle there glaring at me. You know, like he was just <laughs> silent throughout. Typical really hard, man. Love it. Well, it actually crossed my mind that Arco's uh, been remarkably diplomatic thus far in the story. Yeah. Considering it's everything he loves, it's his power base. I think he, at that point, thought there was still a way that he could get what he wanted, which was more money coming in, money to replace the cigarette money, more exposure with the ARL still controlling it. Mm. I, I think he genuinely thought that there was something that could be done. I think in that January 30 meeting, that's probably when it turned the other way, when he realized that it was going to be news running the show. Mm. And for whatever you know platitudes they gave the ARL or whatever assurances that they'd still be running the comp, that was going to be far from the case. So what was on the table was the ARL continuing to run the game with Super League funding. They'd basically be running the first grade competition and you know various state competitions, running the tests and 
you know, judiciary, referees, junior development. But that just basically meant them doing all the work while the <laughs> best players were being siphoned out to Super League, who would be the overarching controllers of the game. It's not a good deal for them. It actually sounds really exciting. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, I, wish, I wish this actually happened. Uh, so this is the point that Kerry Packer caught wind of the plan and flew home from the US. But at the same time, he was putting the feelers out and trying to get a feel for what clubs thought, you know, whether there was support for it, whether there was enthusiasm for it. And if he found more of that, it might have worked out differently. Mm. Uh, so he was being kept in the loop by his friend John Singleton, but Singleton was also working both sides. I don't understand Singleton's role in this. He's just sort of like a shit-stirrer. He has no interests. I mean, I, I guess there's the radio thing. Did 2GB even have the rights then? I'm, I'm not sure. But that, it's funny because he was just there, I think, because he was a rich guy around other rich guys. The ability of a knockabout in Australia to get access to anything is yeah. amazing. Yeah. So Singleton actually informed Roy Masters that it was all happening in Roy Masters' better get up to sydney and he said we've got to take a good look at this news plan to sell franchises of sydney clubs we might buy a slice of west and make sure tommy has a job for life <laughs> i like the sentiment good good mate etc but i mean is that the uh, idea behind Supley that tommy radonica has a job for life <laughs> i think it's literally the opposite <laughs> <laughs> so with all, go all this going on, Ken Arthurson decides that he can't possibly support this idea. So on the Sunday morning, the Sunday of the, the last day of the sevens, the Sunday before the Monday where the meeting would take place, Ken Arthurson rang Ken Cowley just to tell him that he couldn't support the proposal. Ken Cowley could still speak before the clubs, but uh, it wouldn't be with his support or endorsement but that was what was discussed in the the previous meeting right that was that was what was sort of agreed upon well it was it was agreed upon that he could talk but ken cowley got an assurance from arthurson that he would go into it with an open mind right so he's saying i'm going to actually actively yeah speak against it yeah exactly and this led to one of the the most infamous lines in in the whole saga when he told this to ken cowley he said that he'd just come back from walking his dog you know having a think and he decided that he can't get behind it to which Kenrick Cowley replied, What's your dog's name, Kerry? <laughs> So Arthurson <laughs> disputes that. Uh, he said that he hadn't even spoken to Kerry Packer, which when, when you think of the timeline, I think that works out. He was meeting with uh, with Kerry Packer later that afternoon, uh, and he said that if Ken Cowley did say that, that he didn't hear it. That explanation sounds like a politician avoiding something, but also he <laughs> doesn't need to speak to Kerry Packer to know what Kerry Packer wants. Yeah. But what a legendary moment. Ken Cowley said that in a later interview in response to Arthurson and Quayle repeatedly denying that Kerry Packer was wielding the power in the ARL. He said, look, I'm sorry, but that's just not true. If that was true, why did he need permission from Kerry to talk to me about Super League TV rights? He's responsible for running the ARL, not doing what Kerry Packer tells him to do, which I think is a good point. Yeah, but it's not realistic either. Mm. So as I said, the ARL plan of attack was drawn up in Kerry Packer's corporate box at the Sevens. And just in Ken Arthurson's book, when he's talking about this meeting, you can just see how much he would rather have just been watching the Sevens. <laughs> he said, it was the afternoon of Sunday, the 5th of February, 1995 below us on the sfs's green spaces teams from most corners of the globe were engaged in fast <laughs> furious battle in the annual coca-cola world sevens everything looks normal but of course it wasn't i love him so much he just loves the game so it was Arthurson and Kerry Packer, John Quayle, Bob Fulton, and Nick Politis were also there in the box. This is what I want to bring up with you, Nick Politis. Now, I, I cannot reconcile in my mind when he became a power broker. Is, it, is this what made him? Is this the Gus situation? Yeah, so I had this for a bit later in the show because this moment really 
turned East fortunes around. So Nick Politis became chairman of the board at the Roosters in 1993. You have Super Super League coming in 1995. He made a big show in the press. He threatened to sue the ARL if they were forced to merge or uh, you know be part of a second tier kind of competition. Mm. This was all happening in the lead up to this meeting. So East were flexing their muscles in a way that they you know hadn't had the ability to, to do for some time. But the Packers were involved with East then, right? The Packers were involved with East. So yeah, it's sort of like power via proxy. Yeah, but uh, so Politis coming in with a bit of money behind him super league happening suddenly they've got gus one of the mouthpieces of the arl they get freddie all of this happens at this perfect time and these go from being a non-entity one of the first in line to be amalgamated or moved to suddenly you know 25 years later incredible resurrection yeah so it was actually super league that made him as well yeah definitely made a couple of guys yeah so and i don't know how aware of of all all that Nick Politis was at the time, but I, I can certainly see a situation where he thought this was an opportunity to, you know, turn it all around because he had the means where others didn't. Well, it worked out well. Yeah. And in this meeting, in Kerry Packer's box, Ken Arthurson put his appeal to him and uh, I'll, I'll, just, I'll just read it as Arco tells it. In Packer's box at the SFS that day, I said to him, Kerry, I'm genuinely concerned about all this. What I'm getting around to, Kerry, is this. I wouldn't like to think that you'd do a deal with News Limited and leave us out in the cold. It was then that Packer uttered the words I would never forget, assuring me he wouldn't be doing any deal with News Limited. I put out my hand and looked him square in the eye. Thank you, Kerry. I appreciate that, I said. I would have bet my life on Packer honouring that pledge. Heartbreaking. So, of course, it didn't work out that way. And when I was preparing this show, I didn't know whether to discuss this now or to save it for when it takes place in the chronology which is at the end of 1995 Kerry Packer does a deal to get the free-to-air rights for Super League so I, I chose to talk about this now for a couple of reasons firstly was just to reveal Kerry Packer's character when it, it's crazy to me that in certain sections of the media and the public he still is portrayed as this knockabout bloke this is the thing though like, I, I know a couple of guys in my life that have been friends with him but one close friend of him and they reckon he's the best bloke ever the most loyal friend you could ever have and would not speak any ill of him at all then you see actions like this yeah you, you know i mean he's a viper l- like the rest of them yeah and, and he wouldn't even see that as an insult you know like, <laughs> <laughs> these guys take that as a, a high compliment you know and the other thing is to just to show the fact that the framing of it as packerverse murdoch was always a very incomplete picture a picture that still exists today though. yeah yeah but i mean that the fact that he could so easily strike a deal with murdoch shows that his actual stakes in the war eventually became quite minor so if not for Optus, I'd say a compromise deal probably would have been done between Packer and Murdoch within a couple of months. This is what sickens me. I mean, here we are, what, 20 years later, pay TV is almost dead. Right? It's just all this damage is done for this awful Optus vision versus Foxtel. Yeah. It's so irrelevant. But even, but at least with that, there was an actual, there was something at stake. With Packer, like, it seems like it was just a dick swinging contest to him. Like, he comes in, has this big bluster, makes, makes his show, and then almost immediately retreats from the battle. Yeah. It's a period I would like to go back over and um, go a different direction for the game. So we've got a whole episode coming where we break down the TV landscape in a bit of detail. And to be honest, it's something I'm still struggling to get my head around all the business aspects of it. So um, I welcome any corrections that anyone might have. I just wanted to look at those TV deals and how it managed to get all the pieces where they eventually fell. 
So Channel 9 and the ARL reached a deal in 1993 and Packet basically completely lowballed the ARL for that deal. And the ARL took a lot of heat at the time. Their argument was that it was basically that or nothing. So the last time a rights deal was struck, all three commercial networks were in high competition for them. By 1993, 10 was in re- receivership, 7 had no money. So Channel 9 was the only option left. Who was running TV stations back then? Rugby league people? (laughs) And so you can kind of, you can kind of forgive them for that. But then when you read like Ken Arthurson say this, the Channel 9 deal locked us in uncomplainingly. And with an Optus pay TV writer later added, this allowed us no room for flexibility when Super League came along. But just the fact that the pay TV deal is just included as a writer. Yeah. Like I'm not a businessman, but I would have hoped that someone at the ARL could have said, you know what, if, if pay TV starts, they're, they're probably going to want some, some rugby league. Why don't we hold off on that? Yeah. Like it just seemed there was no need to, to make that deal at that time. I think they did this with the digital rights, like a couple of rights deals ago as well. Mm. <laughs> it's threw them in. But it's, it's the overarching theme of this is these blokes were too old school rugby league to deal with business savvy people. Yeah. Just out of their depth. Yeah, that that's definitely true. So Kerry Packer had a minor stake in Optus and for a long time it was viewed that that was going to become a major stake at some point. But he went the other way and just retreated from, you know, taking an active control over optus affairs so at that point in early april he you know basically sold them the rights outright and he no longer had a stake and that's what it all comes down to in the end kerry packer had other interests you know he didn't need this war optus if they didn't have a major sport they had nothing so once he took that decision to sell off his stake and retreat from the fight, basically any hope of compromise was gone. Awful set of circumstances for the game. And then you mentioned the ARL, you know, being unable to to really reckon with these business minds. And well, you got these like stand up guys that are handshake men. Yeah, like you know, handshakes don't mean anything in business because you're dealing with greedy people. Yeah, and and so Ken Arthurson was genuinely devastated by what he saw as Packer's betrayal. This this is what he said. Uh, this was after the second deal was was reached in late 1996 channel 9's move dragged me down about as far as it was possible for a fundamentally positive person like myself to go i just started to feel that i couldn't take it anymore and when i started to think like that i was also figuring i'm not going to be much use to anybody if i'm in this frame of mind god it's tragic so he was devastated by it and again just completely unable to understand business dealings and how people operated so he's a man of his word yeah so he's like other people should keep their word (laughs) so he said this of Packer and Murdoch. The first deal fell through in the wake of squabbling between the billionaires Packer and Murdoch, during which Murdoch called Packer a Welsher. A year or so later, he was back to being an honourable, upright business gentleman in Murdoch's eyes. <laughs> Going back to like rugby league, you carry a minor feud for 30 years. <laughs> Whereas, you know, in the business world, it's like you hate the prick, but I'll take his money. <laughs> so before all this, Packer was in the ARL's corner. So let's move to the meeting itself. So this took place at Phillips Street on Monday, February 6. This is the meeting. The meeting. So Ian Head's writing about it called it one of a handful of the most dramatic days in Australian rugby league history. He put it alongside the Wallaby defections of 1909, the introduction of limited tackle football in 67, the Kevin Humphreys affair, and the arrival of the three new clubs in 1988, which I think is a a fair statement. Just historic times. Yeah. He he also said that... uh, the meeting took place just a well hit two iron up from where rugby league in australia began at the george hotel which i would love to see ian heads uh hit his two iron if he can 
just that quote just shows how long ago this was. Like no one uses two irons anymore. Yeah. <laughs> it's like it's it's a medium hit driving iron now. Uh, so the first person to speak at the meeting was Ken Arthurson, who said that hear this bloke out. He's going to give you a talk, but I want you to know that I'm not behind it. I can't support this idea. This immediately put the likes of Rebo off guard, and they felt that they weren't going to get a fair hearing. <laughs> it's a little bit presumptuous to expect a fair hearing, though. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Very true. But John Rebo came out and said everything was staged even from where we sat all the loyal clubs like manly and east were up the front brisbane oh we were right up the back <laughs> like, surely there weren't like you know seating arrangements <laughs> you probably just didn't get there in time i can imagine the, the electricity in that room though. yeah so then ken cowley got up to give the the beginning of of the news limited pitch so t- just to, to break it down, this was in Mike Coleman's Super League book. The concept consisted of fewer teams, higher average player quality, better between game entertainment and ground facilities, broader national international coverage, and more vigorous promotion. So, you know, everything we've heard about, everything what, that we came to expect of the vision. So the way it was spun, it, it was always saying something and then having everything underlying that saying another thing. So it was, <laughs> you know, th- the existing 20 teams will remain, the heritage will remain, the ARL will run the game but really it was that the ARL will run the game in an administrative sense while Super League run it in a control sense very patronizing yeah uh you know clubs to remain standalone yes playing in a second tier competition while their best players play in the Super League the idea that you know Sydney clubs for example being partners in one of the four Sydney club licenses so you might have Cronulla and St George sharing one license that would have been a disaster there is that is just not workable at at all but well, again that, I, th- I think we all know what would have happened yeah it would have they would have said oh by the way we're cutting ties with you now yeah yeah <laughs> um, we're just going to keep stupid you can keep yeah. your mickey mouse operating. yeah exactly and and that goes a, a lot of this pitch was in theory it sounded great but if you f- spend a moment thinking about it you know that it's not going to work out that way it was all about you know you know no more you know haves and have nots everyone has an equal state and an equal say and it's like well, really so west have an equal say as brisbane yeah. Is that how it's going to work? Tommy's got a job for life. <laughs> I have this utopian vision that it, it could have worked. 12 teams, it could have been a magic, you know, like the NFL, 16 games or whatever, you know, tw- 24 games, play each other twice. But realistically, Sydney probably wouldn't even come out and watch the 14. Yeah. We'd be like 13,000 or something. Mm. That, that's a real possibility. It still would have been a, a dud, a dud com. <laughs> I, I kind of think if you had that utopian thing, that's a situation where the, the crowds legitimately wouldn't matter in Sydney. If there's only four teams... You've got like, you know, one Brisbane killing it and, you know, the Cowboys camera, all these other teams doing well as well, plus the TV coverage. I think you you could have, if it was that 12 team, the elite, the best of the best. I I, I don't think there's any way you you don't get a a 20,000 average in Sydney week to week. But again, that is that utopian thing where you're hoping that it's going to work in the way they're talking about. And it's a very Byzantine structure of trying to keep these clubs alive when like surely they would have, as you say they probably would have been jettisoned within a few years months probably (laughs) so that was the basic idea and there was already a a skeptical air in the room because of the things we've just discussed but the situation wasn't helped by the man delivering that message news executive david smith uh who in the words of north's boss ray Beatty, delivered the worst presentation i've ever been associated with He would have been associated with some pretty bad presentations too, I think. 
So David Smith, like, and, and this this was a mistake that News would make over and over again over the next few months, sending in a non rugby league person to deliver their message. Well, they only had Rebo who was despised. Yeah. But at the same time, I think Rebo would have been a better choice because yes, he would have he's he'd already put a few noses out of joint, but everyone in that room would have put each other's out of noses out of joint, you know, figuratively and literally <laughs> at various points. You know, I think some. Just look at Peter Moore. He, he was the most anti-Rebo bloke out of all of them. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, that didn't stop them. I mean, the fact that he played the game in inverted commas uh, means yeah, a lot. Yeah. So, I mean, as it turns out, Rebo wasn't in a position to show his hand yet. He was still Brisbane boss and hadn't... At, at that point, you know, Brisbane was still denying that they were behind any of it. But David Smith was clearly the wrong man to be delivering the message. Uh, and he, in fact, he was gone from news, you know, within the year. The, the other issue was it was a, a deemed to be a low-rent presentation despite all the you know financial clout and razzmatazz that news had behind them christ if rugby league's calling it low rent how low rent must it be <laughs> I, I know, but this is what i wanted to ask you and and this is something i especially want to ask some of our older listeners like what were the presentation options in 1995 like i was at school then with the transparent overhead projectors yeah like, I, I don't think you had the um, powerpoint yet so I, I looked into it so powerpoint did exist they were up to powerpoint 4.0 which was added to windows it was before windows 95 launched so see it was nowhere near common no yeah so but news probably would have had something yeah but then did the venue have it but it probably would have been a uh, overhead projector yeah so I'm, I'm i'm very interested by that so if anyone was in the corporate world in 1995 please let us know what were your prezos like uh smith in addition to the presentation smith made some errors in in terms of the substance of the presentation so used quotes by arl chief executives and executives from teams that were probably less likely to be with super league like the roosters um used quotes to support the super league vision which you know angered them that their quotes had been misrepresented and you know pulled out of context Christ, that seems like a um, schoolboy error very much so there was a an air of scaremongering in the talk saying that everyone had to get on, on board now or be left behind, which was never going to endear them to the clubs. I actually think the poor guy was in a hiding to nothing, though. I mean, anything in his presentation wouldn't have went over well. Yeah. <laughs> well, and, and that was that was his and the news defense of the presentation. Ken Kelly actually said that David Smith didn't want to give it because he knew that Arthurson was against it and he knew that he wouldn't have the support. But you either give it wholehearted or you, yeah. you don't give it. So And, and Rebo came out and said it was a hostile room and david smith did the best he could but you know he, he was never never going to have a chance there's been bigger men than the middle managers from a media company that have been eaten alive in a rugby league <laughs> room before so i don't hold it against him but well that is why the the most fatal error was appealing to business sense not football ramifications in the super league book mike coleman said that david smith wasn't a revivalist minister so he just kind of read the numbers he did some forecasting and showed where rugby league was heading and where it could be um, but I, I love this quote in the book for the main part the club execs didn't care a hoot about the information superhighway. They, they cared about whether their members would still have a team to support in 10 20 30 years time they saw themselves as protectors of the past not missionaries for the future brilliant quote mm. well, that's the rugby league mindset yeah. See, protection of the past. Yeah. Well, they should have. The presentation should have been every one of you is guaranteed a comp uh, <laughs> if, you, if you go simply. All right, we're in. <laughs> and that's the other thing. How was that presentation ever going to appeal to 
Sydney clubs when it was their necks on the line. Yeah. And and one of the club bosses actually came out and said, I think that if they'd approached a greater number of clubs with a slightly smaller amount of money, they could have got there. How could they expect a majority vote when the majority didn't have anything to gain? Good point. And uh, I, I want to introduce George Piggins to the, the story at this point in, in time, who has, has some great quotes over the course of the next couple of episodes. Uh, this was really interesting to me. Uh, he was talking about how South were, were never involved from the start. This was in George Piggins book never say die i asked smith if he could tell me which of the arl clubs he'd spoken to no he said but i can assure you i won't be speaking to you yes you can count on that i assured him in re- return you've got no chance of talking to me they made it very clear news didn't want to talk to the brokes like us and west <laughs> which he was so ready to admit that south were broke <laughs> and like doesn't think there should be any negative like <laughs> ramifications of that like his defense was always yeah we were struggling but we didn't overspend like other clubs yeah, yeah. but uh th- this was this was one of my favorite quotes this is uh showing wild overestimation of the australian public to me the whole thing was unbelievable here were murdoch and co walking in off the street and taking over football it will be like someone declaring martial law and saying no one goes to work today you've all got to stay home i'm sure australians would say pig's ass we're going to work and we're going to keep this country going <laughs> possibly the worst example ever <laughs> uh, but I, I love george piggins is so like steadfast and resolute the classic old school like this is my way so this is the way A real man's man yeah so uh, i can forgive him for thinking that maybe not everyone would have that same attitude but this is the thing john quail's hard guy glowering at ken kelly mm. george piggins is a hard guy that would have punched him in the face <laughs> <laughs> So at this point, after a fairly underwhelming reception from News Limited, Kerry Packer took the stage. And this was a a much briefer and more to the point address where he basically got up and said, I own the pay TV rights. And if anyone tries to go against me, I'll sue the pants off you, which stopped everyone in their tracks. It even seemed to surprise John Rebo and Porky Morgan, who hadn't been aware that the pay TV rights had already been sold. That seems incredible. And this is coming from their own mouths like they later you know thought we were accusing the ARL of doing a deal with Packer just before that February meeting so the right story being sold in Super League would be stuffed but they were at an address given by John Quayle in 1993 where he announced that the pay TV rights had been sold to Channel 9 it seems like an unforgivable error on their part to not be aware of that it's lunacy but they did raise a good point why didn't that come up in the meeting that Cowley had with Packer yeah yeah and, and I think part of that is that Packer didn't really give a- enough of a meeting to elaborate he just got in there and launched at ken cowley but th- there's some due diligence required there isn't there yeah i'd have to think so before you have your vision have your uh, foundation <laughs> so just despite rebo's uh suspicions it's in meet- meeting minutes that exist today so on the 13th of april 1993 the deal was announced so so there's definitely no no way that a, a last minute deal was put in place interestingly at that same meeting john quayle announced that a handshake deal had been struck between rupert murdoch and the australian rugby league for the international pay tv rights which again shows you the poor business sense of the arl to announce a handshake deal yeah which is essentially worthless where does it rank in the scale of letter of intent and actual contract? <laughs> uh, somewhere below the former, I think. Uh, especially when you listen to this. This was John Quayle. Rupert Murdoch and Ken Cowley asked Ken to Hayman Island. Took him out on a boat, the whole bit. They discussed pay TV and came to an agreement that Murdoch would buy the international rights. No money was discussed, but money wasn't the most important thing. We were after 
exposure. So a handshake deal with Rupert Murdoch. <laughs> on a boat. On a boat where no money was discussed. <laughs> That's worrying when, when the quote from the administration is that money's not important. Yeah. <laughs> ever, ever perpetually broke sport. So at that point, it you know, basically shut everyone up there and then. Peter Moore came out and said that he was worried because the club didn't have director's liability insurance and he didn't want to risk his kids' inheritance because of this thing. That to me is not good leadership. I mean, it's not about your kids' inheritance, is it? Yeah. No, <laughs> it shouldn't be. <laughs> uh, but similarly from the other clubs, they thought, well, what can we do? We, we can't, you know, we can't risk everything to be sued by Kerry Packer. And, and if that wasn't enough, then the ARL brought out their trump card, which was the five-year loyalty agreements that all clubs were basically forced to sign. Uh, they were given, you know, like a 24-hour deadline and risked expulsion if they didn't sign the, the agreements. I don't think that would have held up, though. That's a fair bit of duress. Uh, and, of course, that became the basis of the legal tussle that would take place over the next 18 months. So there, there's a lot to those loyalty agreements that were, you know, a trump card in the original, but were eventually a noose that the ARL couldn't escape. But And these were drawn up in private, so only Arthurson and a very few others knew that they were going to be introduced to that meeting. So it was a genuine ambush. Um <laughs> Com- competing origin stories about when the plan to have the loyalty agreements was was hatched up. So, of course, these were the second loyalty agreements that the club signed. In November, they were asked to sign a, a first agreement, and this was kind of a meatier version of that, despite Colin Love saying that the first ones would have been legally binding anyway. So one story has it that John Quayle and Ken Arthurson came up with the idea before Arthurson had even come back from the kangaroo tour. The other one was that George Piggins introduced it as a way to leverage the ARL. So John Quayle called George Piggins to tell him about what was happening and whether Souths and Piggins could be counted on for the ARL. And Piggins said the famous line, I'll be as loyal to you as you are to me. And I believe George Piggins. George Piggins wouldn't lie. He might mistake what he believes, but he wouldn't lie. Mm. That's my view yeah. of him. So his version is he said that and then he said why don't you get all the clubs to sign a loyalty agreement uh, and that became five years and for clubs like Souths for people like George Piggins they saw that as you know this beacon when everything was falling apart yeah there. so in the end every club fell into line even Brisbane who had some minor resistance ended up signing it and how do you think a man like George Piggins responded to the the rebel clubs not saying anything and, and falling into line <laughs> so he said I would have respected them more if any one of them had put up a hand and said, hang on a sec, we're, we're not going to sign this. We really believe there's something good for the game and what's being proposed. But none of them did. Rugby league's a great game, a tough game, a hard game. But you wouldn't have thought so if you'd seen the piss-weak effort of some of the club officials back then. <laughs> not one official from Canberra or Brisbane or any of those who were defect had the ticket to dig his heels in. <laughs> Uh, and and that failure to say anything did eat away at the likes of John Rebo, who he said that he did feel bad about it on a personal level, but just with the atmosphere in that room and everything that was going on, it just wasn't the the smart move to make a stand then. Yeah, smart move, I think, by the Rebel clubs. Mm. I think that the clubs who were thinking Super League decided it was better to be in a lifeboat with a vest on than out in the open sea without one. <laughs> like it's it's objectively better. <laughs> Piggins wouldn't have a seat in that lifeboat, but he'd at least be able to cling on to the edge. 
Um, so as I said, those loyalty agreements became the basis of the legal fight uh, and was the first shot fired in April. And while it gave the ARL a win in the short term, it had the potential to really stifle them in terms of growth and, and the necessary restructuring of the comp. Uh, I think I've even said this quote before, but I'm, I'm going to read it again. This was from John Rebo in June 1995. One minute they say they always had condensing the competition on their agenda. Next minute they're signing five-year agreements with all clubs. Now, come on, you just can't keep pulling the wool over people's eyes. It's all there in that statement, isn't it? Yeah. And, and I think the idea was that like the loyalty agreements were, were signed with statements made by the ARL that clubs would have five years to basically work on getting together and amalgamating and you know relocating, do what whatever ha- had to happen. But I think the club saw that as all right. We've got five years to to get it together now. Absolutely. You know, and- it's always it's always five years in the future. Mm. Any any tough decisions always put off for five years in the future. Yeah. So while the rebel clubs basically went back to business as usual, you know, biding their times, waiting for further instruction, the loyal clubs or the clubs that hadn't been included in Super League plans handled in different ways. So Neil Whitaker at Balmain said that they'd been given a mandate for the next five years, which that word is always in politics or sport. It's <laughs> it's it's never really used correctly. And again, that was the thinking of a lot of the clubs. We've got a mandate now. We've got five years. <laughs> mandate. <laughs> And even late in 1995, after all the money spent and all the turmoil and the the looming court case and all of it, the Sydney clubs were still saying, you know, we can stand on our own or, you know, if we're going to merge, we're the majority partner, all the rest of it. So I have zero confidence that any club would have willingly got together and tried to sort something out. No. One club would have thought they were the ones to merge. Yeah. It's like, all we got to do is sell a few more chook raffles, <laughs> get, get memberships up to 1,500, yeah. and we'll be sweet. <laughs> and people at home are saying, what about East? You know, with you know they approached South. They obviously um, got pretty far along with St. George. But the thing there was, we were the majority partner. It was East saying, we'll merge, but it's, it's us running the show, you know. Just that, the audacity. It, it was always on their terms. So other clubs were either, you know, gloating or acting out of relief. You know, Illawarra... This wasn't Illawarra the club, but in the Illawarra Mercury, there was a um, back page statement saying, go to hell, Murdoch. <laughs> Actually, that was front page. I got that wrong. Um, Paul Sirenen came out and said that he was really happy that, you know, players wouldn't be losing their jobs uh, and, you know, people shouldn't be too greedy. And then he said, the Tigers have looked after me well for 12 years. That has to count for something. <laughs> Which I, I think it counts as much as the location of Johnny Raper's spilt blood <laughs> as to how we move into the future. He's fast becoming the funniest quota yeah. in this whole series. Um, Steve George Arliss at West said dispensation should be given to foundation clubs, which is another rugby league perennial. We're a foundation club. Yeah, yeah. Which, I, I mean, West should have more sway than the Gold Coast, who, you know, in seven years had been through two names and within another year would have two more. Yeah. But do they deserve more dispensation than Brisbane? Yeah, no. But at that point, with the meeting over and everyone retreating to their corners, the ARL thought that that meeting would put the matter to rest. So John Quayle came out after the meeting and said, Frankly, at the moment, I just want us to get on positively with the 20-team competition. Ken and I have lived with the Super League rumours and talk and discussion for 12 months. And my thoughts now are let's kick off 1995 and focus on that. I bet you he just thought, after all that turmoil, but you thought it's it's another 11th hour escape, rugby league will never die, 
on, onwards and upwards. Yes and no. I mean, he definitely, the way he talked and the way others at the ARL were talking, they knew that there was an air of inevitability about change. But the thing is, you can say it's inevitable, but if you reject every step to make it happen, yeah, you know, and again putting it in the hands of the clubs to look after themselves and make sure it happens it's like saying uh, to the asylum lunatics can you uh just medicate yourselves and uh, do your treatments <laughs> and that was even people who who were rational and, and thought that the five-year loyalty didn't mean that change wouldn't happen the whole thing this quote from norm tasker uh, is typical of the way it was being it was being discussed hopefully the resolve of the clubs at last monday's special meeting will put the matter to rest if rationalization of the competition is to follow as many feel it must it can now follow in a much more ordered fashion that would be a hope yeah uh so from the news limited side of things publicly at least they were saying that that was that was it that was putting the matter to rest ken arthurson rang ken cowley to tell him the news that the clubs had decided not to go ahead with super league and ken cowley said he was disappointed but he gave an assurance that any future approaches will be through the front door uh to which when that was put to john rebo he basically said well how can you go through the front door when the door's locked very good point <laughs> uh, and ken cowley said that the one thing he didn't want to do was stuff up the game he said <laughs> cheers he, he said he told rupert murdoch that he said i'm not going to have in my small bow tie unimportant bloody book of my life that i was responsible for the destruction of rugby league in australia no way i've told rupert that whatever happens at the end of the day we've got to make sure the, rem the game remains alive and healthy and better than before otherwise neither of us should be doing it can you imagine rupert murdoch's reaction to that yeah yeah sure man <laughs> absolutely <laughs> Not a problem. Uh, so Brisbane as well publicly talked all nicely. Um, so Paul Morgan conceded that the club had made mistakes in the past and said, I'd like to think the directors of this club are very professional, but I'd be the first to admit we make our mistakes as well. We think our relations with the league from now on will improve. <laughs> Within a week, it was put <laughs> to John Rebo that he leaves the post as chief executive to become the boss of Super League. Good Lord. Uh, but John Rebo, to his credit, at least in the press, was speaking more openly, saying, look, if we can make this game bigger and better, for the public, for our patrons and for our sponsors, then I believe that's good for Rugby League. We've always had an open mind on this Super League issue and we'll continue to have that in the future. So, I mean, being very disingenuous about his role in it, but at least publicly acknowledging that it had his general support. I maintain that he's been the most reasonable throughout the whole thing to this point. Yeah, I, I, I tend to agree. For, for all the, the demonising, he, he always speaks very rationally. Kerry Packer rang Ken Cowley after the meeting. Ken Cowley, he'd been very friendly with, you know, before all this broke out and said, let's just go back to being friends. Let's not worry about any of this. And then ominously said, now you know who ru runs rugby league in this country. <laughs> Do you usually get like uh, ominous threats from your friends? Or? <laughs> so in even more ominous words, as as we end this chapter, in, in a 60 Minutes episode in March, Rupert Murdoch was being interviewed. And when the topic of Super League came up and the fact that the meeting had essentially ended the dispute, Rupert Murdoch said, that's just the halftime score. I remember this 60 Minutes episode like it was yesterday. The uproar that this interview caused, we're talking about bad ideas putting David Smith as the presentation. How bad an idea was that interview for him? Yeah. It's probably the worst current affairs program ever produced since today tonight. They're always going to make him look like an evil psychopath. Yeah. And that's what happened. <laughs> 
And that's where we leave this chapter, the game in a you know state of relative peace. The next episode, we'll see the culmination of the phony war before the blitzkrieg that ensues thereafter. So I'd uh, love to get your thoughts on tonight's episode. Please uh, hit us up on Facebook and Twitter. Send an email to the Rugby League Digest at gmail.com. Uh, as always, I will give a little book recommendation based on tonight's episode. I realized that I forgot to do that last week. So for last week's, I actually want to just talk about Rugby League Week, the Bible, which has been so invaluable to this research. Uh, and over the course of the last couple of years, I've made my way through a fair chunk of its run from start to finish. And I think the period from about 1980 through to the late 90s, it was just unassailable. Majestic. But certainly in 1994, 1995, Rugby League Week was must read incredible. Uh, so that was last week's recommendation. For this week, I, I am going to recommend Mike Holman's Super League book, which Super League, The Inside Story, incredible detail on this period of the war and through the next year or so essential reading uh so with that we will get out of here and speak to you next week relative peace Serves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.